Well, I think we've had two wonderful past Sundays um, with Richard and uh, with John um, in the Word of God. Um, it really stirred me, I, you know, really just to hear, um, you know, what, um, oh, his name's gone for me now, Ezra the scribe, you know, standing up, just simply reading or declaring to people what was written down on paper, explaining it and helping them to understand it. It's quite simple, isn't it? And um, it, it really stirred in me something, you know, when I heard it. And so I sort of approached it like this, really, you know, if, we can, if I can do that. And um, we will just learn from what God has to say for us today. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews 11. It's where we are in a series on what we're calling real faith. We go down to first 17, which is where we are this morning. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, proved him, or whatever you like, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Note the deliberate wording there. Offered sacrifice, uh, offered Isaac as a sacrifice when he didn't actually do it in the end. But in that aspect of his faith, his trust in God, he did the deed. He did it in here, you know? He did the deed. God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. And even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Just a short reading. But verse 19 is very poignant for us this morning, very close to where we are as believers in Jesus Christ, that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. That took some reasoning. He'd never seen the thing happen before. Where he got the reasoning and the understanding to even begin to work that out is another thing. But Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. That's an issue. Because there are so many people that don't believe it. And yet Christians do believe it, that God can raise the dead. Well, in this Hebrews 11, the writer is exposing these different people as examples of faith. No, real faith. Examples of real faith. The people he was writing to were in a place of faith. They were in a certain place of believing in God and trusting in certain things about God, but the, the issue of real faith had come to challenge them in their lives. What are you believing in? 
You know, does it mean something to you? Is it making a change in your life every day? They're, they're good questions. Is what I believe in Jesus really making a difference in my life? Does it help me in my circumstances? Does it bring challenges which are new? Does it, does it prove, does it, does it test where I am? And this is where Abraham was. God tested Abraham. I had in mind to bring this small a little bit of dynamite or gunpowder and a little bit of flour and a jar of flour. Now, the two characters of these things are very different. You know, if you throw a match into gunpowder or dynamite, it will go whoosh like that. It has an explosive nature. Now, would you believe it? Flour, too, explodes quite violently in the right conditions. And it's very difficult to prove that it explodes. But with dynamite, it's quite easy to test it and prove that it explodes. Now, God tested Abraham. He was probing, he was probing how much he believed in God. And you say, well, Abraham was a friend of God. Abraham was a man who believed and trusted in God. How much further does God need to go? How much further did God need to go? There is an aspect of the Christian life that sometimes God proves and probes and may ask us the question, well, how much further do I need to go with you to really test that your faith, your trust in me is real? I would say this. In a sense, God has taken the sting out of this kind of test in reality because of Jesus. Jesus took the sting of death we know that. But also for us, it's become a much more simplified thing, although the faith is still as real. And sometimes I have to ask myself, how much do I really believe what Jesus did on the cross for me actually dealt with my sin? And, and I have to... And ha, am I really going to heaven? Am I really going to be in the presence of God because of what Jesus done? <coughs> And there's a real testing sometimes of those things, you know, which we say we believe. We sing, we sing some outrageous things in the songs that we sing sometimes. Laying our lives on the altar. Yeah. But, you know, there are many Christians today who are laying their lives on the altar. And they would do anything for Jesus. They would do anything for him. It's difficult for me to actually preach that because I don't feel I'm in that place, you know? You, you, you want to be in that place, and yet until the testing and the proving comes, you're not quite sure how far you might get to. You're uncertain about that. And I know many people are uncertain about this aspect of God proving what we believe. God does know what's in here because of Jesus and for us, it's a very matter of simple faith sometimes that we believe in what Jesus done, did for us was so very real. A lady once said to me in Stowe when we was working with the children, she said, my, God, my children cannot understand God, but they understand Jesus. And I thought there was a real, a, a real point to that. You know, Jesus has made it very real for us to believe in him and what God says. 
It makes it a lot easier. It makes it, it makes it real. And so we praise God today for what Jesus has done for us. But the faith still remains. The belief aspect and resurrection is part of this. The story about Abraham and Isaac is a, very, is a controversial one. It's a hot potato today. If you look on the website, you'll find that this story is a hot potato. It's stirring people to write, rewrite the story. It's stirring the Jewish community to write it out of Scripture. It is stirring Christian people to say, this is horrific. Why do this thing? This current thinking in our generation is, this is horrible. This is gruesome. It is controversial. It sets, it against, it sets itself against many things that God said in his word. But our God is a controversial God because they're real issues. And to simplify that, we say our God has ways. He has ways. Now, David, the psalmist, he wrote about idols. They have eyes, but they don't see. Ears, but they don't hear. And mouths, they don't say anything. And they ain't got ways. <laughs> They're inanimate. But it, the living God has ways. Ways which are proved. And God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are higher than your ways, says the Lord. And as far as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his love towards those that fear him. He has ways. Our God has ways. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? You can know where we stand with a God who has ways because he leads and because he guides and he directs. So it's controversial. This is a story of tough love. It's a crime of passion. And it's also a ritual killing. There are issues to think about. It's also controversial in this aspect that um, people are saying, was God testing Abraham or was Abraham testing God? Something for you to think about, isn't it? But God has called us to test him and to prove him. So it's not out of the question, but it's a controversial issue. It's very much put to us, God was testing Abraham. But it was also an opportunity for Abraham to test God, to prove him. I mean, David said, taste and see that the Lord is good. You want to prove God's goodness? Many people who are now Christians have put themselves in the position, Lord, if you do this for me, I'll believe in you. And although that's not the approach to true faith, God knows a heart that truly wants to see who he is. And he might say, well, I will do it. I will prove you who I am. And so it's not out of the question, but it's also a controversial issue. There could be a bit of controversy about um, Abraham and Sarah. Did he tell her? Or didn't he tell her? I tell you what, there'd have been a controversy in that household if he did tell her, I know that. But that's a bit of supposition because it's not written into the story. It's not written into the story, so we don't know that. But I can imagine what might have happened in that household. Yeah, I'm just going off to kill Isaac this morning. Well, in a few days' time. We'll be back. But God's told me to kill him. You can imagine what would happened, wouldn't you? You can imagine what happened to today's generation if someone said that. 
I'm doing this, God said, kill him. And so it's controversial in that sense. But if we look at the story of, uh, in a lot of what it's about, it's prophetic meaning, jumping forward. We have to say there's something else happening here. This is almost, you know in the insurance business that they have underwriters? And in a sense this story is underwriting a greater and more profound thing that was going to happen in the earth. And that was Jesus. God giving and sending Jesus to be the saviour of the world. The other controversial thing in this story is that God said, take Isaac, your only son. But he wasn't his only son really, was he? Because he had Ishmael as well. He wasn't his only son. And in a sense, God is saying, I'm stating something prophetically here. The only son point of this story is the fact there's only one that I can choose, through whom to choose to bless the whole world and to take that one person and magnify that person through whom the blessing will come. And so that makes it controversial in other faiths. I just say that in inverted commas and leave it there. It makes it controversial. And so it is a controversial story. Our God is a controversial God. In actual fact, the gospel, Jesus dying for us on a cross to save the world from sin, is controversial. And that's why Richard Dawkins is trying to make controversy about it and about all the things to do with our God and creation. Because it's an issue of God who has ways and man doesn't fully understand God's ways. So it becomes an issue of controversy. But the church meets controversially full head on and takes what scripture says. That's what this is about. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And so Abraham was in that position of being sure of what he was hoping for and certain of what he did not see. This one event in Abraham's life lets the lion out of the cage. We read in that story of Abraham and Isaac, because you have done this, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. (laughs) Pray, what a lion. All the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've done this? How wonderful and how majestic is obedience to God, how that other people can be blessed through what we do in our obedience. And so simply as we come to Jesus and accept him as our saviour, others too can be blessed. Simple point, but we can bless the world. We can bless others around us. That means what, the way we do it and what we say and how we do it, if it's true in its character, and because of faith and trust in God, it will release blessing over other people's lives. Because you've done this, because you've done it, what a place to be. My man, back there. You know, because you've done this. And so the lion is let out of the cage because Abraham was obedient. I've already said that the story is prophetic too. It has truth value for another day. It has truth value 
for another day. And so in it, we have this picture of a man who has an only son, and he's willing to give him up as a sacrifice because he's been challenged to do that. And so in one real act of faith, Abraham declares his love for God and Jesus in one act of obedience he declared God's love for the world. He declared God's love for the world. Because you have done this. And this morning we stand blessed, don't we? Because of what Jesus has done for us. The wonderful hope which he's given us, which you've been singing about this morning. I'm going to go through these verses in Hebrews 11, which we just read. Verse 17, by, by faith. This is the subject under construction in the writer's writing to these Christians. You know, they had real faith. They hadn't gone back to a place of faith. And now they were being challenged to come back to real faith, to the place of real faith. That's the subject under construction. The writer's taken his hearers from the difference between faith and real faith. Do we want to be taken from the place of faith to real faith? God has said, prove me in these things. Prove me in these things. It's like the man who asked God for patience, and God sent the most irritable man to work alongside in his workplace so that he could learn patience and not just be given it out of a bowl. You know, that's the way God works. He actually proves he does a more valuable work than we could ever ask for. Teaching us to do things. In Titus it says teaching us to say no to ungodliness. You know, how God works in our life to teach us to do things, to have a value about those things rather than just receiving them. It's like working for something. You save up for something and you buy it. And you, you, there's a value to that because you've done it. There's a value to it. And so God's in the place of teaching us to do things. Although people admit to having faith, real faith is something more James said that, didn't he? You say you have faith, I'll say if I have faith and show it to you by what I do. It's not just a matter of, of head knowledge. And so the issue is faith. And it's like this. It's faith which God understands. God doesn't understand the person who says something and doesn't do anything about it. Someone said once, it's... Uh, it's right to, to be called a fool, but then to open your mouth and prove it <laughs> is another thing. If God understands it, our faith, then others around will see it. Real faith. If God understands real faith, then others will see it, and they will know it. 
So it's by faith. And so Abraham, we're introduced to the man Abraham in this passage, and this is a man with a new name, a man in covenant with God, and yet God is still proving him and testing him. He might say, what are you doing to me, this to me for, God? And sometimes we say those sort of things, don't we? I don't know why this is happening to me. I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. I've given my life to it, and all this is happening to me. Why me? Why me? And sometimes it does, it does seem like that. But you know, God is not punishing us. He may be teaching us, but he's not punishing us because Jesus took all the punishment for our sin. It's never punishment. He may be teaching us something, but it's never punishment because Jesus has taken all of that. He's taken it all upon himself. So Abraham's a man with a new name. We have a new name when we trust Jesus. We're a people in covenant with God through Jesus. We have that agreement with God. And there still may be times of testing and proving to come. But it's to teach us to be wonderful people, to teach us to be, and to have value in what we're being taught. It's not just, you know, people, some men say, I'm under the thumb, you know. That's never a picture of God. <laughs> now, God teaches us something to have value out of it. You know, if you want to love, if you feel you're not able to love as you ought to do, and you, and you pray to God, help me to love someone. In my early years of married life, I said to God, please help me to love my children. And he helped me to do that. And I really enjoyed doing it. Because God helps us. He teaches us to have value in what we're being taught. A man with a new name, a man in covenant with God, and God tested him. And the meaning here behind this is whilst the trial is in progress, Abraham had already offered up his son. It was done in here. And when we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and we feel there's such a need to change everything and we feel guilty about things sometimes, God knows it's done in here. He knows the issue of changes we want to make and the needs we so desperately feel in our life to change. He knows that we want to do them. He knows that we want to change. He knows that we want to become more like Jesus because it's already in progress, a trial in progress. And Abraham was in that situation. The trial is in progress. Abraham had already offered up his son. He'd already done it. That was the desire of his heart to be obedient to God and to do what he said. Next phrase. God tested him and offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. The understanding of this is that it was not an isolated incident of a man in uncertainty. God said, kill him, so I will. The word slaughter is used. And Abraham just could have got up one morning and say, while Isaac's not looking or while he's asleep in bed, I'll just stick the knife in him. That's more than that. It was more than that. That was cold, calculated, oh, I'll do it because God says. Not an issue 
I love God so much. And I love the ways and the work of God so much. I'll do it. The difference. The difference in the heart. And that's what's brought over here. Because not only did God say, take your only son, he said, take your only son whom you love. And the word that is used there is not a strong enough word for what's meant underneath. What happened was Isaac had come in the place between him and God. You could rephrase it like this. Take Isaac, the one you've come to idolise, the one you worship the ground he walks on, the one you want to pass on all your wealth to, and the one that's keeping you from me. There's a sense of idol there, you know? Sometimes in life, children are taken as the person's idol. What I've not achieved, I want my child to achieve and do it because I didn't. There could be a little bit of idol worship about that, you know, and sometimes children could keep us from God. What would my family think? What would my family think if I became a Christian or I started following God? In a sense, there's that little bit of more respect for my family than God. It's a difficult thing to work out. How do a married couple say they love God more than each other? But it's, that has to be. It's a very close call. But how do we demonstrate our love for God is more important? Let's take it. That's the first commandment, isn't it? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind. I think that's an important one, isn't it? Loving God with our mind? So maybe this, taste, this test was a bit more poignant to Abraham than to other people. This son which he'd had in his old age, which he thought he'd never have. I've seen people been poor all their lives, you know, and then they get a lump sum of money and they want to hold on to it. <laughs> because you haven't had it, you hold on to it. Sometimes it comes between them and God. Holding on to things, holding on to people, holding on to family. Well, let's face it, Abraham separated from his father. It was almost like the prodigal son story. You know, because God <coughs> took him away. The families in those days kept together. They lived together, they died together as one big family. That was the purpose. And so this is a test. And sometimes these tests, these challenges come to us as believers. What are we going to put in between us and God? It's the whole concept of idling, isn't it? It was a common thing for children to be sacrificed in those days. You know, it wasn't hot news or anything like that. It was something that happened quite a bit. So what, why was this different? You say, well, Abraham's not doing it, which is abnormal here. He, he's doing it because God's told him to do it. What's the difference? Because it was a test of his love him. 
a test of his love for him. A very deep and a very strong test, but it also has that prophetic work about it. You know? There was preparation. There was journey. There was deliberation. There was wisdom. There was confidence in what Abraham was doing. It wasn't just slaughter. It wasn't, it wasn't just ritual. But let's face it. When it came to the completed altar and the victim upon the wood ready for lighting, the knife was poised in a way with an action that called for all the ritual of bringing a burnt offering to God. So he'd lay his hand on his head. He'd take the knife to his throat. Now where do you go from there? He's laid on the wood, he's on an altar, ritual killing. It's another slant on that, isn't it? It was done with the ritual of giving something to God. The ritual of giving something to God. Yeah, he could have stuck the knife in any time. He could have pushed him over the mountain on the journey. But he said to his servants, you stay here while I and the lad go yonder to worship. To worship. You stay here. The wisdom in that. The other twist to this story is that there was, in a sense, at that point, there was no substitute for Isaac. It was Ishmael. Ah, if only I'd have pushed him away. The donkey I've left behind. And I didn't bring one of those servants with me. They could have died in place of me. But there's no substitute. He was going to do it. And in his wise ways, he took away, or he made sure that they didn't become an option in the end. You know? In hindsight, we know that donkeys weren't acceptable beasts to offer as a, as a sacrifice to God. And we know that there's only one substitute for our sin and for the sin of the world, and that's Jesus. God looked in the earth and he saw no one. The Bible tells us that. But he looked at his son Jesus. There's no one else. My son who is perfect and holy and spotless, unblemished, undefiled, separate from sinners. He was the one that was offered as our substitute in our place. Nothing else was going to make any sense. Nothing else was going to deal with this issue. So it was sacrifice, not slaughter. Yeah? It was sacrifice. God said to Abraham, offer him there as a sacrifice. You say, this is gruesome. This is horrible. Yes, it may be. And in his heart, Isaac did it because, in a sense, he needed to prove his love for God. And sometimes we need to do that prove our love for God. 
Issues become so very important. Sometimes in church, issues become more important than what it's all about. Our love for God. Sometimes the issue of worship and worship bands, and I don't like that song, and I don't like that style, and I don't want to do it that way. And I'd rather be somewhere else. But when it comes down into the end, it's my love for Jesus. My love for the one who gave his life for me. What was it Jesus said to Peter? Peter, do you love me? Do you really love me? That's the issue, isn't it? It is the issue. Do you really love me? He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. This is the friend of God, the man who had demonstrated faith in other areas of his life. And even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Return your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to refer and, and read about a man who was reasoning with early Christians that God could raise the dead. This was the time of teaching. This was a time of learning. But it was an issue which had to be dealt with. You know, when Abraham offered up his son, and it's written about him that he reasoned that God could raise the dead, there was a majestic footprint made on the earth. The issue of resurrection. That dead corpses actually become alive again. Dead corpses. The world has all sorts of views. I will come back as an ant, or I will come back as a butterfly, or a dog, or something. You know? That the Bible, when Abraham did it, because you've done this thing, what a tremendous footprint was laid on the earth. Resurrection's coming, boys and girls, you know. God's going to make dead corpses alive again. That's the fundamental thing. God is going to make dead corpses alive again. You say, whoopee. <laughs> that is you. You'll come back as you. I'll come back as me. But there's a challenge in that as well. Let's just read this. You see, if you look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15... But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Paul reasoning. And what he's saying is, the issue of resurrection needs to be reasoned in the church because it's so important. The issue of dead corpses becoming alive again is an issue that needs to be dealt with in the church. It's fundamental to the foundation of the church because Paul earlier said... Now, brothers, I want you to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain, faith in vain. Resurrection is important to a sure and certain faith. This is not a believing in vain. It's an issue of real faith, to believe in the resurrection. Verse 3, for what I received I passed on to you 
as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he has appeared to Peter, etc., and to so many other people at once. The issue of dead corpses coming alive again is a very strong issue for the church. It's fundamental to the church's well-being, its foundation, and also its continuance. It's the foundation to knowing power in life as a Christian. It's the foundation to experiencing more of God, as we could read on and about that. Not only is it dealing, you know, with reasoning of the faith, uh, you know, about resurrection, it, Paul is reasoning with it, he's telling us how it's going to happen and who it's going to happen to at a later stage in the Scriptures. But if anything, I want us to understand this morning, the Bible teaches that dead corpses will come alive again. Because that is all going to happen because of what Jesus did. How that he died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. First look at the warning. If you turn your Bibles to John chapter 5... Verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Hey, wonderful, hallelujah, and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, amen, a time is coming, has now come, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now that's not the dead in the graves, that's the spiritually dead. The people who ignore God and say God doesn't exist. People like Richard Dawkins at the present time, we hope he will be saved and we really pray that he will be. But people who actually ignore God and don't take for face value creation and the wonderful works of God and it's saying those people are dead and if those people hear the word of God they will become alive spiritually alive. If we read on, verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son, Jesus, to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Don't be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice. And come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. This is the warning. And those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. Which group are you amongst this morning? Do you know which group you're amongst this morning? The issue of the resurrection, people becoming alive again, is very important. Some people say... When I die, I'm done for. I'm finished. No. That's not what the Bible teaches. I'm not here to say what I teach. The Bible teaches us a standing before God one day and answering to what I've done with my life and who I've believed and who I've trusted in and who I've given my life to, like Abraham. You know? Abraham reasoned that God would raise the dead 
Paul's reasoning here that God will raise the dead. But it's not all goody-goody. God has issues to deal with in this earth. He wants to deal with the sin, and he also wants to deal with the righteousness. So we will all stand before God one day. It's an issue of resurrection. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians and just let's get the hope and the value of this for ourselves this morning. The value of the resurrection. And it'd be mainly in just reading what's here. Verse 12, we've already read this, but read it again. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching, my preaching this morning, is useless. And so is your faith. Real faith or just faith? And so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. Verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has been not been raised, your faith is futile. The word faith again. You are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we have all men to be pitied, more than all men. Sorry, I didn't read that right. I have just read it out of my head from the authorised version. Let me read that again. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Go down to verse 25. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? It's the reasoning, again. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps a corn, or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, and the moon another, and the stars another, and the stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body, the hope through the resurrection of the dead. Jesus is coming again. You know, there's a strange phase in Revelation. Let it just help us a little bit. He said, after the first resurrection, there are two resurrections, 
the rest of the dead lived on. Yeah, you make something of that phrase, the rest of the dead lived on. So it's not annihilation when we die, it's waiting to face the responsibility of what we have done and what we know of God in this life and how we've accepted his truth over our lives. But all can be right in trusting Jesus as our saviour, letting him do the work that he wants to do with us. The one thing about this is, you know, there are implications because of what Jesus has done. Implications that we have to face and to deal with. But for Abraham, he reasoned that God could raise the dead. In that sense, we need to come alongside these early Christians and say, well, it doesn't seem very vague to me. Shouldn't be now. Paul has reasoned out the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of people, and what those implications mean. We know what they are. It's up to us to do something about it before we have to face God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this man, Abraham. The writer, when he was compiling this, he said to us, now look, the world is not worthy of people like this. And so in a sense, Lord, we look up to Abraham today and we say thank you for what he taught us today. Thank you for his life. And we thank you, Father, too, for those believing people in other lands who are under persecution and difficulty, and they're willing to give their whole life, to lay it down for you because they trust you. They're willing to give up their homes, they're willing to give up their money, they're willing to give up their family because they love you so much. And Lord, this is controversial because you've told us to be families and to love them. But Lord, maybe that test goes on further sometimes for any one of us. And you want to prove us today. Holy Spirit, come upon us, we pray. Would you do your work in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives today. Help us to reason out too, Lord, what you're going to do because we have this valuable truth before us, this instruction for eternity. <laughs> Lord, we thank you. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.